choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 130 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1, Preparation. To gain some background on how the Block 1 command module came to use a 100% oxygen atmosphere and why it had no explosive hatch, we need to take a quick trip back to 1962. In the original bid, North American had proposed a two-gas environment in the spacecraft cabin, a combination of oxygen and nitrogen, like the air we breathe here on Earth. But the two-gas system was complicated. You had to have separate regulators for the oxygen and the nitrogen, and some kind of sensing device yet to be invented that would maintain the right mix. If the thing got out of whack, the astronauts could die, like canaries in a mine shaft, before they knew what hit them. Max Faget favored a pure oxygen environment. To make sure that you've got enough oxygen in the atmosphere, all you have to do is measure it. Pressure sensors are very reliable. They're rugged, simple, mechanical. But a partial pressure oxygen sensor is a very classy little electronic thing. You have to process the signal. You have to calibrate the sen sensor and you have to have a backup sensor. But the North American team didn't like the idea of pure oxygen because of the fire danger. Toby Friedman, North American's physician, argued against it vehemently. He had seen, with his own eyes, an experiment at Litton Industries where they lit a piece of cloth in a pure oxygen environment and the thing burned so fast, it practically vaporized. The issue had been batted back and forth at the lower levels, and when it finally made it to the upper levels, a meeting was held at North American. Present were Charlie Frick, NASA's Apollo's spacecraft program officer, and his people, along with their counterparts at North American, all jammed into a big conference room. Charlie Frick announced that NASA had decided to go with pure oxygen. At this point, the room erupted. Everybody on the North American side of the table was dead set against it. Charlie Feltz, North American's chief engineer of the Apollo program, said it plainly. Quote, it's the wrong thing to do, end quote. But Frick's team were concerned with the complexity of the two-gas system, and they were afraid it would be an astronaut killer. 
By the end of the meeting, John Pulp, North America's general manager, and Charlie Frick were screaming at each other. Finally, Frick cut it off. You are the contractor, he shouted at Pop. You do as you're told, period. Though Charlie Feltz was not a memo writer by nature, he felt strongly enough about this one to dash off a letter to Houston. But Houston was unmoved. The decision was based on the best judgment of the only people in the country with actual hands-on experience in spacecraft design. Gilruth and Faget were responsible for the Mercury capsule. The Mercury capsule had a pure oxygen environment and it had already flown three tremendously successful missions without a problem. Storms told Gilruth he wouldn't make the change without written orders. Gilruth had it drawn up and it went in the books as contract change notice number one calling for a cabin atmosphere of 5 PSIA pure oxygen. The troopers muttered and grumbled and then set about to design an oxygen environment, and the fear of fire was replaced by other fears more pressing and more immediate, and it receded into the background, a lurking horseman waiting for his moment to take the stage. The second major contract change sealed the fate of everyone involved as surely as a bolt sliding home in the breach. North American had proposed an explosive hatch on the ship, but NASA was unsettled by the idea of having a piece of the wall fastened on with explosive bolts. If the hatch blew accidentally while the astronauts were out of their suits, their blood would boil. The airplane builders at North American didn't share any of these concerns. They had been using explosive bolts to blow the canopies off fighter aircraft since the early 50s, and there had not been a single incident where a canopy blew off accidentally, not even in combat. But Max Faget had a gut-level resistance to the idea of an explosive hatch, and the roots of his aversion easy to trace. Max had spent World War II in a U.S. Navy submarine, and there's nothing that gets a submariner's attention like the subject of hull integrity. The idea of an explosive hatch in the side of the ship made Max's skin crawl. On July 10, 1962, Faget and Bob Gilruth and Charlie Frick several dozen key people from Houston arrived in Downey for a look at the first Apollo mock-up, which was a full-size wood and aluminum rendering of the spacecraft that reflected the design as of that moment. Along with the NASA contingent was one of the Mercury astronauts, Gus Grissom. All day long, the teams of specialists from NASA crawled over the mock-up with their opposite number from North American, while the photographers took shots of Grissom. Off to one side, several of the major players were clustered together in an argument about the cockpit hatch. 
as conceived by Feltz and Norm Riker from North American, the hatch would open outward, and that required a fairly complex locking mechanism. Max Faget hated it on sight. He wanted the hatch to open inward, with beveled edges like a cork, so the pressure inside the cabin would help seal it in place. It was a lot easier to design, and you didn't have to worry about the fasteners. The outward opening hatch would be a mechanical nightmare, and it would be very heavy. There was only one advantage to the North American approach. It could be opened in a hurry, because you didn't have to wait till the cabin was depressurized. But, as far as Max Faget was concerned, North American was looking at the problem backwards. The primary concern was not how to escape from the spaceship in an emergency, but how to keep it in one piece so you didn't have an emergency in the first place. One clean, simple way to assure hull integrity was to design an uncomplicated square cork for a square hole without any of those explosive bolts. Charlie Feltz was vehement. He knew all kinds of guys up at Edwards who had saved their behinds by pulling the trigger and blasting free of a disintegrating airplane, and he couldn't understand why Max was so worried about it. Max said, You ride in that ball all the way to the moon and back, and you blow that any one time and you've lost it all. Pulp reminded everyone that there had never been a single recorded incident of explosive bolts firing accidentally. But that wasn't quite true. There had been one single incident, and the man it had happened to was right there in the room. On the second Mercury flight, Gus Grissom almost drowned when the hatch on his capsule blew off prematurely, and they lost the capsule itself in 2,800 fathoms. Grissom said he was just lying there, waiting to be picked up when the hatch blew. None of the aircraft engineers believed that for a second. But NASA backed Grissom up to the hilt, publicly. Grissom always maintained it had been a malfunction, that the hatch had blown off by accident. But somehow, there had been lingering skepticism in the press, at NASA, and even among the other astronauts. These doubts infuriated Grissom. He fought to make up for that image. In 1965, after helping to design the two-man Gemini spacecraft, he commanded its successful first flight. On that flight, after splashdown, Grissom got motion sickness from rough waters, but still refused to open the hatch until the capsule was on the ship. When Grissom joined the argument, he weighed in heavily against the explosive hatch, and whether or not the people standing there believed his version of the story, the fact remained that however it happened, the hatch blew. So the possibility existed. By the end of the session, Charlie Frick and John Pulp were nose to nose again, and Frick summarized NASA's position 
at the top of his voice, quote, We're not going to have any explosives in the spacecraft, end quote. North American was ordered to design a hatch that could not be blown out under any circumstances. A plug hatch that would open inward and be sealed in place by the pressure inside the spacecraft. And so, Gus Grissom assisted in the alignment of the details that would eventually seal his fate. For a long time, Charlie Phelps dragged his feet. He told his people to leave the weight in the design. He was bent on saving the outward opening hatch of nothing else. If the crew had to get out in a hurry, at least they'd have a chance. But Houston finally caught him and made him take the weight out. So Feltz folded his hand and told his guys to come up with a set of blueprints for the plug hatch. But he did not feel very good about it. Now let's fast forward to 1966. The flight of Apollo 1 was originally set for October, but the spacecraft was five weeks late reaching the Cape, so the launch was rescheduled for early December. The United States was determined to get a manned flight off before the end of the year, with a view toward reaching the moon by the end of 1968. The urgency, as always, was fueled by the speculation about the Soviet Union. The New York Times seemed to be already bracing for another Russian victory. In June, the Times editorialized, quote, It is still too early to predict whether English or Russian will be the native language of the first man on the moon. But the prospect is that no more than a few months will separate the two nations separate accomplishments of this historic feat, end quote. Insiders like Gilruth and von Braun, however, were pretty sure they had pulled in front of the Soviets as far as manned lunar landing was concerned. For one thing, the Russians had yet to demonstrate any ability to navigate in space. NASA, on the other hand, had already worked out the critical rendezvous problem. On the final Gemini flight that November, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin docked with a target vehicle several times, and, for the fun, they steered their ship through the shadow of a solar eclipse. The Russians, however, had been strangely silent, though they did have a package of instruments in orbit around the moon they had not launched a manned mission in 18 months. What were they up to? The CIA thought there might be a clue in a speech by a Russian scientist earlier that spring. At a news conference in Moscow, the head of the Soviet Academy of Sciences talked openly about the overwhelming problems associated with bringing the cosmonauts home, and he said, quote, the biggest problem is getting them off the surface of the moon once they have landed, end quote. Perhaps the Russians were planning to skip that part of the trip. Flying around the moon, for instance, was a piece of cake compared to landing there. 
but this distinction would probably be lost on the general public. If the Russians were the first to fly past the moon, it would be another preemptive spectacular. The man in the street would say the communist had won. Inside the Kremlin, however, America's anxiety must have seemed quite misplaced. But nobody in the United States knew this. So the specter of another stunning red triumph dogged Washington throughout the closing months of 1966 and kept the heat under the griddle for spacecraft number 12, intended for Apollo 1. But the spacecraft was not ready and still having problems with the environmental control system. This complex of exotic pumps, boilers, radiators, and high-pressure tanks was supposed to supply the astronauts with oxygen and drinking water and keep them warm and toasty in the frigid void. It had 11 subsystems with 80 major components, and during the development, some or all of these components had failed on the test stand a couple hundred times, each time calling for a redesign. The construction of the oxygen tanks was typical of the manufacturing problems. If car tires were built to the same standards, you would only have to check the pressure once every 30 million years. And the insulation was so effective that ice cubes inside the tank would have taken eight years to melt. The job had been a brutal experience for the Garrett Corporation, the Los Angeles jet engine manufacturer that designed and built the environmental system, and it had been one of the pacing items on the schedule almost from the outset. Now it looked as though it would be a cliffhanger right up to the moment of liftoff. Just before the spacecraft was shipped to the Cape, a coolant pump failed in the control unit, and it was decided to replace the whole thing from the unit from Spacecraft 14. But after the spacecraft reached Florida, the problems continued. John G. Schinkel, Apollo program manager at Kennedy, complained about the amount of engineering work that still had to be done. He said more than half of it should have been finished before the spacecraft left the factory. The environmental control unit needed to be replaced again, which held up testing in the vacuum chamber. The new environmental control unit was sent on November 2nd, and within two weeks it was installed and testing was begun. Unfortunately, the tests were so bad that it had to be returned to the manufacturer for further work. By mid-December, the component was back in Florida and in the spacecraft. Meanwhile, the service module had been waiting in a vacuum chamber for the command module. While it was sitting there, a light shattered and falling debris damaged several of the maneuvering thrusters. But this was not the only cause for worry about the service module. On October 25th, at the North American factory, the service module for Spacecraft 17 was undergoing routine pressure tests of the propulsion system's propellant tanks when the tanks suddenly exploded. No one was injured, but North American and NASA engineers were baffled as to the cause for the next few weeks. The tanks had not been overpressurized, 
Test procedures had not been relaxed, and no design deficiencies were apparent. Yet the fuel storage tank had failed with a bang. Since the service module for Spacecraft 12 had been through identical tests, Joseph Shea was vitally concerned with unraveling this riddle before Grissom and his crew flew. William Bland and Joseph Katanchik were sent from the Manned Spacecraft Center to Downey to help North American hunt for the problem, and Houston set up a parallel test to verify the results. They learned that the methanol used as a test pressurant fluid caused stress corrosion, or cracking, of the titanium alloy used for the propellant tanks. Replacing the methanol with a fluid that was compatible with titanium would eliminate this problem. In the meantime, the tanks were removed from service module 12 and found to be free of any dangerous corrosion. Meanwhile, on October 7th, the Design Certification Review Board, consisting of Miller, Gilruth, Von Braun, and DeBuse, met and agreed that Space Vehicle Number 12 conformed to design requirements and was flight-worthy, provided several deficiencies were corrected. The list of items were sent to Lee James at Marshall, Schinkel at Kennedy, and Shea at the Manned Spacecraft Center, urging speedy clearance. Schinkel had already registered his complaints about Spacecraft 12. Now he added that Houston should insist on better spacecraft being shipped to the Cape. He pointed out the major problems that had been found. A leak in the service propulsion system. Problems with the reaction control system. Troubles in the environmental control unit. And even design deficiencies in the crew couches that required North American engineers to travel from Downey to the Cape to correct them. Finally, in early December, NASA reluctantly gave up on its plans for launching the first manned Apollo flight before the end of 1966. Miller and Siemens then reshuffled the flight schedule, delaying AS-204 until February 1967, and scrubbing the scheduled second mission. Oh, wait... What second mission? It's not widely known, but for a time, the mission called AS-204, which eventually was referred to as Apollo 1, had two flight plans. AS-204A, manned by Gus Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee, was to verify spacecraft operations and command service module subsystem performance for an Earth orbit mission of up to 14 days duration, and to verify the launch vehicle subsystems performance in preparation for subsequent operational Saturn 1B missions. The flight would be in the last quarter of 1966 from Launch Complex 34 at Cape Kennedy. AS-204B, on the other hand, would be an unmanned mission with the same objectives, except for the crew operations, to be flown only if spacecraft and launch vehicle had not qualified for manned flights. And there were doubts. 
gas ingestion in the service module propulsion system in AS-201 and the resulting erratic firing had caused some misgivings, although these had been somewhat allayed by the flight of AS-202. Following AS-204, NASA planned to fly the lunar module alone and then a manned Block 2 command and service module in August 1967 to rendezvous with unmanned Lunar Module 2, the Lunar Module being lofted into orbit by a Saturn 1B in a mission dubbed AS-205-208. If everything went well, NASA hoped to get two crews besides Grissom's spaceborne by the end of 1967, with at least one riding a Saturn V. But all did not go well. While flight preparation crews were having problems, Grissom, White, and Chaffee were finding bottlenecks in training activities. But Gus Grissom was generally unhappy with just about everything that winter of 1966, including his fellow crewmen. He accused the other astronauts of goofing off and not taking care of business, and he was upset with North American because of all the problems he had to go through whenever he wanted to make a little change in the command module. On Mercury or Gemini, if he wanted to change something, he went to Old Man McDonald and got it changed. But by the time Grissom arrived on Apollo, the program managers had finally set up a change control board with teeth in it, and Grissom found himself getting overruled like everybody else. So, he focused his raft on the spacecraft simulator, the computer-driven cockpit mock-up that the astronauts used for training. The Apollo simulator was an ungainly assemblage that looked like a train wreck surrounded by mainframe computers. It was supposed to give the astronauts a sense of flying the ship, right down to the image of the moon projected on the windows. The main simulator was located in Houston, where the astronauts were based, but they spent so much time at the Cape that they had another one installed down there. Naturally, they wanted the simulators to match the end product as closely as possible. It's no good to train with a switch in one place and find it somewhere else on the real thing. But the Apollo design was still so fluid that there were always a couple of hundred outstanding modifications in the works. Toward the end of January, Grissom was passing through Houston on his way to the Cape for another simulated practice run. And just before he said goodbye to his wife, Betty, he went out in the backyard and plucked a big Texas lemon off the tree. When he got to the Cape, he hung it on the Apollo simulator. But it was a parting shot. Grissom and his shipmates were just about done with this particular piece of machinery anyway. The real thing was now sitting on pad 34, and they were about to turn it on and put it through its paces.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.